So I love the fact that we're doing We Care Day. I just think it tells the community that uh, we care about them and uh, we should all get involved in that as much as we can. That's fantastic. You know, yesterday I came in after playing golf and uh, came into church and I just noticed that the car park was all crazy and all these things in the car park, it was all kind of like uh, converted into different areas and squares. And then I came in here and I wondered, what, what's going on? The worship's going on, the worship's going on. I came in here and juniors was doing their camp. And I just saw dozens of really, how old are the kids and juniors? Grade four to six, right? And they're just in here just worshiping God. It was just incredible. But they were just standing on the chairs, right? So I hope you wiped them a bit this morning, right? But uh, I, I just love that. You know, we are setting direction for our young people. And Jacinta Bradford just does an amazing job in leading that group of people because we want to see a direction set for our children. You want them as they come into their lives where they start making decisions for themselves to actually start making decisions based on what God would have to say. See, after a kid gets around about 12, the parents are no longer their loudest voice. It's their friends. And so therefore, it's good that we kind of put inside and get inside of them a, a consideration of God. And so well done, Jacinta. I know the kids enjoyed it. But it was good for me as a pastor to come in here and just see these kids. Like, it was messy. It's very different to Sunday morning, right? And I'm pretty impressed at how you got our, this church looking as good as it is, right, <laughs> after what I saw yesterday afternoon. So well done to our junior youth. So today, we're going to continue on our series on the book of Peter, and today might be a little controversial, all right? So the very first word of the chapter can actually get your hackles up. And so before I preach today, I just need to say, I'm leaving directly after the service, <laughs> all right? Before uh, praise and worship is finished, I'll be out in my car, changing my email address to something I can't tell anyone, I'm turning off my text messages and possibly getting a new phone number. All right, so just, just, you know, so just putting it out there. Putting it out there. So before we dive into chapter three, let's do a little recap of chapters one and two for those of you who haven't been here just to kind of like get you on the right page and get you ready. So the book of 1 Peter is written by Peter the Apostle. He's writing to Christians who are living in hostile cities. Some are there because they're escaping persecution and some are there because they've actually been converted. Those who had left Jerusalem went and saw the message of Jesus kind of expanded and people had come to Christ. This is where they live and it's a book written to converted Christians. It's trying to teach how to live a Christian life in a hostile place, to live a Christian life where Christianity isn't regarded and Christianity isn't going to get you ahead. It's a difficult place. It's a, it's a place of, of where believing can give you persecution and definitely restriction. It's written to people who are going through a hard time because of their faith and there isn't an instant answer where God's just not going to do this miracle and it's all going to change and it's all going to be great and it's all going to be excellent and you didn't have to go through anything. It's written to people who are going to have to persevere and endure. So that's what chapter one is kind of like about. And, and, and chapter one, Peter focuses people on the eternal. 
to persevere in this tough, hostile world, when your faith, you've got to have an eternal mindset. If you judge everything by what's happening around you, you're going to fill yourself with resignation. You just want to, going to give up. But as you have an eternal mindset, you're able to persevere, you're able to endure. In chapter two, we're encouraged to put aside things. Put aside things like malice and deceit and slander and envy and, and, and hypocrisy because that is the fruit of not having an eternal mindset and to be honest, will only increase the hostility towards us from those outside of the faith. Peter shows us that with an eternal mindset, we will see ourselves as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and that we are God's special people, that God regards us, that we are choice when it comes to God. Then he gives us some instructions on how we deal with injustice and how we persevere through unfairness. He speaks about honouring the government and, and honouring people of position. He speaks to us of working hard in our workplaces so that people wouldn't have a reason to go against us. And we saw that if we endure through these tough conditions, trusting Him who judges rightly, looking to Jesus as our example, then God gives us credit, so to speak, in the bank of heaven. What it says is if, you, you know, if, you, if you're doing bad things and someone comes against you, then you just get what you get. But if you're getting judged and things are coming against you and you're still doing good, then that builds up a credit in God's bank, so to speak. So chapter two is essentially telling us how an eternal mindset will help us persevere and endure through some of the tougher things in our walk with God. Okay, so we're there. We are now getting to chapter three. And I'm gonna read to you, I'm gonna pray. Father, I pray that you would just take my words and help people, Lord. Father, let them see what you're saying, oh God. Let them see, oh God. Father, things that are gonna help them, oh God, encourage them. Reveal yourself and your heart and your love for us. In this, in Jesus' name, amen. So here I am on Friday, ready to look at chapter three. I've read chapter three many, many times, but I'd forgotten how it started. So, chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. So I can't kind of dismiss it because it says likewise. If I've read this kind of words beforehand, I've actually got to look at this as well, right? That even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, look at that, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious, not just in man's sight, but in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and not afraid with any terror. Whoa. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. I'm looking straight at my notes. 
You know, we can get a fight going on in here if we stop reading there. And that's essentially what stupid people have done. They've actually just stopped reading there. I want you to notice that there's a comma, not a full stop. And as someone said to me this morning, definitely not an exclamation mark. Right, you have, to, you have to interpret that statement by what comes next. But before we read what comes next, let's actually address the statement, wise be submissive to your own husband, because it is actually written there. We actually have to address it. We, I'm not gonna try and tell you why it shouldn't be there or, or why not to listen to that. I wanna have a look at why it's written there and, and, and address that. Some people try and make out it's not there because they believe there's no difference between male and female because it seems like to them that it makes a, a, a one rule over the other, that men are born to rule over women. And today, in wider society, it's almost a sin to say that men are different to women. And, you know, the, the guy who, or the woman who won the, you know, the weightlifting championship was like, I could win that championship, and I'm weak, right? Because but, men are stronger. We go do that later. Um, quick, get back to my notes. You could tell, I could tell that was going nowhere. All right, so let's get back to the beginning, to Genesis. Let's look at the creation. Let's see God's original intent. Once we see that, we will see that though we are different, one gender isn't better than or of more value than. So Genesis 2, 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. Everyone say helper. Helper comparable to him. God in the garden saw that Adam needed a helper. And it's the word helper that gets miscommunicated. God isn't saying that he's making Adam a servant or someone lower than him. No, he's making a helper comparable to him. The same, not above, not below, not superior, not inferior, it's the same. The helper is equal. The helper is comparable. The literal translation of the word helper is help succour. It's like it's good for the soul. It gives you this internal strength to be able to do something. It's someone to carry the burden with, to do the task. Now, if today my task was to move this piano, I had to move this piano with all of its chords and I had to move it from here and I had to move it over to the other side. Now, what I would do is that I would have no idea what to do. I would actually have to ask Jason, Jason, can you please come and help me move the piano? Don't you have to do it because we'll leave it right there, right? But... That's what it means. I can't do that by myself. Adam couldn't do what he was asked to do by himself. So God gave him someone to help him. If I ask Jason to help me do that, it's because I can't do the whole job. Not because Jason is weaker than me. Not because Jason is inferior to me. Not because Jason is lower than me. Not because I rule over Jason. It's because we need to get the job done. We need to get the job done. And so God gives Adam a helper. Husbands and wives need to work together to achieve what it is that God has for us. 
So please never use this scripture to make it seem as if you're better or that you're worse. If you read what comes after, wives be submissive to your husband, you will never bully someone into submission and you will never be bullied into submission. So let's read what it does actually say. Wives likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. It's actually talking about your ability to influence. Don't lose your ability to bring godly influence upon your husbands. We as husbands, I want to say, are more convicted by what you do by your actions than by your words. Proverbs speaks three times about a nagging wife, a wife that just keeps on going on and on and on and on. The first time you find the husband's in the corner of the room, the second time you find that he's outside like in the kind of proverbial shed, and then the third time he's gone altogether. We just can't deal with her. Men are ego-driven creatures. That's the problem. We are driven by our ego. So if you want us to do something, compliment us rather than berating us. If you compliment us, we are putty in your hands. If I go to Jason, Jason, that is a really nice shirt. I love the way that fits on you. I like the way it looks. It's a good shirt. Trust me, he will wear that shirt all the time. Every man will do that, right? You like a shirt on your husband? Tell him it's great. He'll make sure that's washed and ironed all the time. He'll be out there doing it. Right, it's saying, wives, respect your husbands. The word fear here isn't the word fear as in scared, but is in the word consideration. Consider your husband, consider what it is that he's doing and saying. Then it goes on to some clues of what this means. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Be godly in who you are. Don't make your life about the outward. Wives become spiritually attractive. I want to say, Nina is the most attractive woman I know. Everything about her attracts me to her. She's beautiful on the outside, but I want to say she's incredible on the inside. That's what attracts me. That's what's always attracted me. That's what's always drawn me to her. That's what's always made me want to consider what she says, who she is. Not just what she says, not just how good it is on the outside, but who she is, is what attracts me. Who she is, is what makes me want to listen to her. And she is by far and away, like there is daylight second, the biggest influence in my life. And I'm very unlikely to do anything that she doesn't want me to do. I am literally putty in her hands. So it's not about me making Nina submit to me. The onus is on me to live in such a way 
that she doesn't need to live her life trying to make the outside perfect, but that she lives her life to try and make the inside good because it's her, it's her on the inside that I love. I'm in love with her, not just the physical. So understand that. If you get that inside right, you become the most attractive woman to your husband on the planet. But husbands, we don't get off scot-free. We've actually got some big responsibility. And when you see the kind of penalty for missing out, you, you want to get it right. 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. I have to do well with Nina, or God will not hear my prayers. There's very few places in the Bible where God says he won't listen. If you regard sin in your heart, then the Bible says, and I believe that that means when you pray where God can only do one thing, right? you don't allow God to do what he wants to do. But it says your prayers will be hindered if you don't dwell with your wife with understanding. If you're a husband here today and you're wondering, if you're like, God doesn't listen to my prayers, maybe you're not trying hard enough to understand your wife. Maybe you're trying to rule your wife. Maybe if you tried understanding your wife more and hearing her point of view more, you might actually see that she has something to say. And that decision that you make together is way better than the decision you want to make on your own. The Bible says that, that, that how can two walk together unless they're agreed? You know, there are some things that Nina supports me in, and that's good, but there are some things that we need to walk together in agreement. If I came to Brisbane saying, well, I just want to go. That's what God's called me. I want to go. I know I'm supposed to come. You just, and if she supported me, she goes, okay, I'll do it because you want me to, right? If she supported me, what would happen is that like, as soon as it got hard, well, I didn't want to be here anyway. I don't know why you wanted to come here. I never really wanted to be here. I only came because you wanted to be here. I thought it would be good for you. And so what happens, we have trouble. But what happens, because it's such a big decision, we've got agreement. So when we came to Brisbane and things got hard, or if they, when they got hard, she didn't come and say, well, I didn't ever want to be here. You only just wanted to do what you wanted to do. No, we agreed to make this decision. We together made this decision. So it's saying, love your wife. Make her feel that out of all the women in the world, she is the one who matters most to you. And so it really isn't that hard if you want to work it to this way, if a man feels respected, he will love his wife. If a wife feels loved, she will respect her husband. By the way, where it says weaker vessel, it literally means strength. It literally means you can open the jar that she can't. That's all it means. There's no, don't bring any other meaning into it. You can look at the original language. It literally is just about strength. So if you're a smart husband, you'll go home today and you'll tighten up all the jars just to make sure that she feels she still needs you. <coughs> so these scriptures aren't written to make one of the genders rule over the other. They're actually about order. Men and women are different no matter what modern thinking tries to tell us. And it happened back in the fall. 
It happened back in the fall, and you've got to actually understand this. Men and women's hearts, wants, and values are different at our very core. It's not just about chromosomes. It's we are different at our very core. There are two schools of thought, and I'll just give you a little bit of Bible college here, when it comes to the difference between men and women. One is called complementarian. And that means we're distinct, but we complement one another. We both have different roles to get the job done, but we are both of equal value. God does not see one as more important than the other. Men and women are created for their particular role, but complementarians believe that men should never have authority over a man. The other view is egalitarian, which means men and women are equal in the God's eyes and equal to perform any task. What I find, to be honest, is putting labels on anything is actually not helpful because the truth lies in the middle and not in either of those two camps. God being God and God being like he is, is not gonna be restricted to man's definitions. That's not who God is. No one's going, oh, I wanted to, oh, sorry, that your definition is this. No, what God says is what it is. They're both sides as wrong as another, because fear is behind both types of thinking. Complementarians believe that they are breaking God's created laws and thereby bringing themselves into punishment and judgment by allowing a woman to have authority over a man. Egalitarians' fear of the other group is a fear of, 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 of oppression, that men will use their power to subjugate women. So to see the real answer, we actually need to go back again to the beginning and see God's original design and intent. And if I have to, in my own personal kind of study of all of this, this is, this is what makes sense to me. How God made it in the beginning is how it should be. So if I add something to that, then I've added something to how God originally intended it. Now the fall of mind might came, and I'll explain that in a minute, but we got to, the original intent is what we need to look at. All right, so let's go to Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, talking of the Trinity there, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see in creation, in the very creation, we see both male and female are created in God's image. No distinction, no difference, both in the image of God. It then tells us, let them have dominion over. Once again, no distinction, no difference. Both are given dominion. Then God calls them male and female, and there is no meaning attached. It's literally just making them distinct. It's literally and purposely done to denote that there's two genders, but there's no additional meaning. It's just meaning male, female. It's not saying and adding or judging or making any sort of extrapolation from that. It just denotes both genders. So in Genesis 2, we have the second account of creation. God breathed life 
into the dust, creating Adam. And we read the scripture that we read before, Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone, and I'll make a helper comparable for him. Right? Adam is so happy, he writes the first poem in verse 23. Then man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. Now you think about this. Up to that point, everything that God had made was good. It always said, they looked and said, it is good. Up to that point, so the first time we see something that's not good in the Bible is when a man is alone. God needed to make it good and he made woman to live in the garden in intimacy with God and with each other. The word Eden means pleasure. So God created a garden of pleasure, everything done, everything provided, perfect protection, perfect peace, perfect provision, everything perfect in that place. And then every day they would meet with God. They would walk in the cool of the evening with God. So there was perfect intimacy with each other and perfect intimacy with God, perfect provision, perfect protection. It was the best place ever. But also in the garden was an enemy, the serpent. And Adam needed help to overcome that serpent. Because for us to overcome any devil in our life, we actually need to work together, husbands and wives working together and protecting our family from the works of the enemy. So in Genesis 3, we see that Eve lets her guard down and she's deceived by the serpent and in disobedience, she and Adam eat the forbidden fruit and then it all starts. At that moment in time, with that disobedience came separation from God. Men and women are now separated from God. They who used to walk in the cool of the evenings with God are now separated from God. Death, shame, and separation come into the world as a result of the fall. And the fall results in curses. Two curses come to us. Men will have to work the earth. So now not everything is provided for in the garden. Now he's got to work in the garden. He's got to work and toil to get his food, to get his shelter, to get his protection. He's got to work. And the Bible says it's going to be painful. And all of us say amen to that. How good it would be not to work. Adam created from the dirt now has trouble from the earth. I want you to see that. Adam's curse is in the dirt from whence he came. Women are going to have pain and childbirth and trouble with their husband. That's what it says. This is interesting. She came out of Adam, has trouble with Adam. Adam comes out of the dirt, has trouble with the dirt. Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, two desires, but he shall rule over you. Very quiet in this room today. <laughs> Men and women at our core 
desire different things. The actual difference between men and women is because of the fall. We now have a different base in our core. A man is motivated by his work and a woman by her husband and family. Contrary desires. The man is now working the earth. The intimacy of the garden of walking with God has been lost because we're no longer perfectly looked after in the garden. Man needs to now work to eat and have shelter. And so when it says men shall rule over, it says this, man's need to provide is gonna triumph over the woman's need for intimacy. And that's the difference. That's why there's enmity. That's why there's, there's a contrary desire. And it has to be that way because if I'm just having intimate times with my wife, I starve, right? I get rained upon. All the different things, I have to go out and work and provide for my family. That's how it works. The man is now working the earth. And so what we see is that the trouble between men and women really is just life playing out. It's just life doing its thing. It's because of the fall. So I hope that helps you give some kind of background to this passage of Scripture, I didn't plan to go this way, I promise you. When I sat down, I did not plan to go this way, but once I get down a rabbit hole, right, I actually love looking at it and seeing it, I don't know where it's going to lead. So I leave that with you today because I always think we have to go back to how God originally intended things to understand. Do you still love me? Yeah. Good, I'm moving on, thank you. Now I'm going to prove to you that Peter was a preacher. Because we are in chapter 3. How many chapters are in the book of, Mark, uh, book of 1 Peter? Anyone know? I'm giving you a clue. How many? Five. So we are now verse 8 of chapter 3. And what's the first word? Come on, Peter. All right. So finally, it's not finally, we're only halfway through. All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not reviling evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, this is like a prophecy. This is a prophecy we can all take. He who would love life and see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to his prayers. We've just heard about your prayers being hindered. So this is how to make sure your, your ears are, or your God's ears are hearing your prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Up to this point, Peter has addressed the important relationships that we have if we're living in hostile world. He addresses our and how to act with our civil authorities, talks about how we should be in our workplaces. He's just talked about how we should be with our spouses. And now Peter is talking about how we should treat people generally. This is how a Christian, Bible-believing person who puts Jesus first should live in society with those who don't agree with us. This is how we should act. 
Be tender-hearted. I love that. Look for the good in people. Look for the good in people. Don't look why how someone's trying to scam you, how someone's trying to... Look for the good in people. Engage people. If someone looks at you, give them a smile. Be tender-hearted. If someone's going through a hard time, care. If someone in your workplace is going and telling you a story, I don't care if they've told them about, they've told you 10 times about their divorce or what happened. Listen the 11th time. Listen the 12th time. Have some compassion. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Treat people with respect. That waitress might have given you terrible service. Treat her with respect. That person might have been rude to you. Treat them with respect. That person may have cut you off. Just treat people with respect. Be courteous. Don't look down on people. Don't look down on people. Don't judge people. Don't look down on them. Everyone's, everyone's got, oh, you know, like, just love the person who got your coffee order wrong. There's no express, there's no need to, exple- to express your displeasure every time something goes awry. There's just no need to do it. There's no need to, in, to inflict your feeling because you're feeling whatever on someone else's day. I personally live by this maxim, I go, okay, how has someone felt after I've left them? And every now and then, because I am reactionary, I want, you know, right? And, and I sometimes find myself and I go, no, you're just gonna leave this person with a bad day because you're mad, right? Because you're having a bad day. So be courteous. Do not return evil for evil. You know, I've tried to teach in my family that we live by how we live, not by what someone else did for us. Not by, we, you know, someone gave this much for a gift to us, so it doesn't mean that I have to give that much. I can give what I want to give. Does it make sense? I'm not, I'm not going to be bound by someone else's reaction to me. I'm going to live right. I'm going to do it right. We can't allow ourselves to be kind of like, well, they did this, and reactionary. They did this, that was bad, now I'm gonna do bad for them. Or they did bad, now that gives me a, a reason not to, to be kind to them. And this is especially with our families. All of us have got real families with people who do dumb things, right? Maybe we should turn the camera off right now, right? I won't go into my family, but my family do dumb things sometimes. And I wanna be mad, and I should be mad. And I'm, you know, like, but Why? That's not for me to be. Just be kind. I'm not going to return evil for evil. You know, if I return love for evil, when I pray for my enemies, when I do something good to someone who's done something bad to me, the Bible says like heaping coals upon their head. I want my conscience to be clear before God and before people. And it's not going to be whether you yelled at me or whether you were good to me or whether it wasn't. Right? I'm going to try and act the same. Don't revile and speak well of people. If you look at social media, some Christians can, uh, like, got, like, professorships in reviling. Right? They're just so easy to say so mean things about people. But you know what I've worked out over the years? There's actually very few really bad people. There's actually very few really horrible people. There's a lot of people who life has made them a certain way. 
There's a lot of people who, who the circumstances of what they've had to go through and, and all of these different things, maybe sometimes their own choices. But I've got to love those who, who are guilty. You know, when, you know, Jesus speaks about, you know, whenever we did it to the least of these, we did it unto him. And one of the things is, is prisoners, and it's always hit me, is that, you know, there's going to be the prisoners saying they didn't do it, but the majority of people in prison are there because they did something. Right? They're, they're actually guilty. Sometimes we've got to actually love the people that are guilty too, that are jerks, that, that, that have done the wrong thing. We can't just love the people doing it all right. We've got to love those that are also doing it wrong. So turn from evil and do good. So don't just not do evil stuff, but actually do some good stuff. What are you doing to help people? Seek peace. Be active in seeking peace. Be a peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper. Sometimes by being a peacekeeper, you're not a peacemaker at all. All you're doing is making sure that when the battle comes, it's going to be a big one, right? So you're better off just trying to get in there and make peace early. That makes God hear your prayers, and it's a promised blessing. All right, so 1 Peter 3, 13, we're going to go on. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. This is key, this stuff. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, consideration having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I, I just like this. I, I reckon that if you were to kind of summarize my base thoughts of Christianity, of, of how I believe we should live, I believe it's this. I, I, I just believe this, this is it. This is what I think is very valuable. If we live right in an unrighteous world, if we live doing good, if we live trying to make this world a better place, we are going to live a better life and an easier life. The world may never understand us. They may be against us. But if we're doing good, what are they got to say? What can they actually say? Yeah. You know, in two weeks' time, we have a chance to go to Bray Park High School. And I'll actually be disappointed if we only get 40 people. Right? It'll just be like, come on, what are we doing? Right? But we have the chance to go to Bray Park High School and beautify their grounds and gardens. We're going to do some painting. That's doing good. You know, I'm sure there are parents at that school who hate the church. Not maybe this church, but all the church. As soon as there's a Christian thing at the school, they make sure their kids are, are pulled out of that. They don't want anything to do with church. But I want to tell you, the most hardened atheist, when they take their kids to school on that Monday are gonna be glad that their kid's going to a school that's got a better environment and looks better than what it did the week before, yeah. right? And so they may hate the church. 
They may go, that church is this and that and all these other things, but they're going to be grateful for the church. And then maybe, just maybe, just maybe, that will just kind of like dent the paradigm that they have about church and what the church is about. I don't think anyone's going to get saved. Oh, gee, the gardens are good. I think I'll give my life to Jesus. Right? Oh, wow, this room is painted. Oh, that's it. I'm going to bow my knee now. Jesus is Lord. I don't think that's the reaction. But what happens is that when I've been thinking like this and all of a sudden I see that, I go, okay. And then maybe I start to think about it. And then maybe that one Christian that I've given a hard time to at work is a guy, you know, this church up the road, they just did this thing for our school and and da-da-da, and a conversation is able to come. And so you're able to move someone on. Right, it has to be good that the church that they park, drive past has actually done something. And if you think about it, Bray Park High School is a, church, is a school that's closest to us where our community is going to. Right? Our community is going to. We need to do good. What happens is they may not love us, they may not give their, their, their lives to Christ, but they're definitely going to have a better attitude to the church and Christians. And that's what we're called to do. If I want to make life easier in a hostile society, be kind, do good to the ones who are wanting to be hostile to me. That's the easiest way to win them over. Life for everyone was hard back then. If you were living back then, in those days, there's no water, there's no light, there's, there's no the things that, that we think of. Work's hard, life's hard. It's not just hard for, for Christians. Everyone's living a hard life. So when people do good in tough times, that gets people's attention. A lot of people are doing it hard right now. Right? We live in a nice area here around Warner. There's nice homes. But there is a lot of mortgage stress. There's a lot of people having to work way too much to be able to pay the mortgage. And then that causes marriage problems and, and all these different things. And we are the light. Let's be light in their darkness. Let's do kind things. Let's do good things. Let's not just preach to them. Let's actually do good things. To be honest, I'd rather get told off for being good things than doing good things than for just being a jerk. Right? That jerk Christian who I work with, that jerk person who's in a, No, just do good. And if they don't like it, well, too bad, as it says. All right, a band can come now. We're going to the end. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven as at the right hand of God, Angels, authorities, powers having been made subject to him. There's a bit in this. I won't go long. Jesus was punished for doing good. He never did anything evil. He never sinned against God. He never sinned against any person. Jesus, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. Yet he was still murdered. But he knew he was achieving the greater good. 
He brought us all to God. It then speaks of spirits and prison and divine long-suffering, Noah and eight people being saved. And I want to tell you, theologians have been arguing for centuries. And I could keep you here till next Wednesday afternoon, going through all the different theories and thoughts and all the different things. It's just difficult what all that means. But after looking what I think the book is about, I feel the simplest explanation still sits best to me. The theme of the book is living and enduring through tough times in a hostile world where people don't really love what you believe, then I think this makes sense to me. Noah did good in an evil time. The ones that didn't lessen ended up bound in hell. And the ones who were good had to wait for the tough time to end for Noah to build the ark. They were long-suffering, but they were saved in that. You know, I'm very happy to be wrong in this area, go and study it for yourselves, right? And when you know, come and speak to me. Peter then reminds us the importance of baptism, showing that giving our lives to Jesus and in following God's command to get baptised, that our old sinful nature that was biased to sin, that was biased to do what God didn't want, that was biased completely to our own wants and desires, now gets changed. We now, as we come out of that water, as we come out of that flood of Noah's time, so to speak, we are new creations in Christ. We are born again. And at this moment in the service, I want to ask you, how are you with Jesus today? How are you with Jesus today? Is He your Lord? Is He your Saviour? Are you trusting your life to Him today? So just everyone just close their eyes. Because I just want to give an opportunity if you're not a Christian in this house today, you're not a Christian here this morning, to give your life to Christ. To trust Him with your life. If that's you in this place today, can you just raise a hand as I look over? I'd love to pray with you. Is there anyone at all as I look over this meeting right now? Anyone to give their life to Jesus? Anyone at all? Fantastic. You know, Peter finishes this chapter by reminding us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and that He has power over all the principalities and over every power. And that's how I want to send you home today. Understand, things might be against you. Everything might be tough. There might be things that you need to endure But Jesus is at the right hand of God and He's been given all power, all authority, and He's on your side. He loves you. He's called you. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people that are special to Him. And so God is on your side. So there be 10,000 be against you. He is still greater than anything that you face today. Think of the servant who thought and saw the armies arrayed against the, the Israel. And God said, look up and see the mighty army of heaven. That's what I want to send you home with today. That you would see the mighty heaven army that is arrayed for you, that goes in the battle for you. Jesus has won. Right a hand to heaven. Why don't you stand? Raise your hand to heaven. Father, I pray that that's how we would go today. Understanding, oh Lord, that all authority and all power, all dominion, 
is in Your Name, O God. Father, we may go through tough times and difficult times, but Lord, You are God. You win, O God. In the end, the enemy is nothing. And in the end, God, through Jesus Christ, we stand with You. You've brought us all to You, O God. Thank You. And we walk in our dominion. In Jesus' name, amen. I would love to...